Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So I is for Iggy Pop. Ah, Iggy Pop, born James Newell Osterberg Jr., April the 21st, 1947. Been called the godfather of punk, which he doesn't like, does he, Iggy? It's not a very well-loved phrase in no. America. If you call somebody a punk, it's yeah. hardly a, uh, a compliment. Yes, it? it has a different backstory, doesn't it? Anyways, we know him, of course, as the uh, vocalist with the Stooges, who got back together in 2003 against all the odds, well-known for his outrageous and unpredictable stage antics, which, Mark, usually involve some kind of trouser malfunction. Or peanut butter on occasions. Mm, yeah. The Stooges, as we know, uh, inducted finally into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. Okay, so his early life. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I know a lot about Bowie. Uh, there are people who have forgotten more about Bowie than I know, but I know a fair bit about um, Iggy Pop as well. Mm. And he had a bit a, a bit of a strange life. He, he seemed a very happy life for him. But mm. anyway, he was born in Muskegon, Michigan, yeah. the son of Luella, Nee Christensen, and James Newell Osterberg Sr., inevitably, a former high school English teacher and a baseball coach at Fordson High School in Dearborn, Michigan. Okay, and in a 2007 Rolling Stone interview, Iggy Pop explained his relationship with his parents and their contribution to his music. Yeah, I mean, he was raised in a trailer park, wasn't he, in uh, Ypsilanti in Michigan. He says, once I hit junior high in Ann Arbor, I began going to school with the son of the president of Ford Motor Company with kids of wealth and distinction. But I had a wealth that beat them all. I had the tremendous investment my parents made in me. I got a lot of care. They helped me explore anything I was interested in. This culminated in their evacuation from the master bedroom in the trailer because that was the only room big enough for my drum kit. They gave me their bedroom. I mean, that, what a, what a kind of, you know, an act of love that is. It's just so brilliant and it obviously paid off. And the irony being, of course, that he didn't play drums for very long, as mm-hmm. we'll find out. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, the early days, he began his music career as a drummer in various high school bands in Ann Arbor, Michigan, including in the Iguanas, who made some records, one being uh, Bo Diddley's Mona, mm. that was in 1965, and it was whilst in the Iguanas that he became Iggy. Okay, and uh, he was into the blues, wasn't he? And yeah. there was bands knocking around like the Prime Movers, which featured brothers Dan and Michael Irwin, uh, or Irwine, it could be. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he eventually dropped out of University of Michigan and moved to Chicago to learn more about the blues. So he's dedicated, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah. If you want to find out about the urban blues, you go to Chicago. And it was there he started playing drums in blues clubs, helped along by a guy called Sam Lay, who had been in the Paul Butterfield uh, blues band, but had been playing with Howling Wolf for many years Wow, well, well. That's credibility for you. Uh, who shared all his connections with Iggy. He was inspired by Chicago Blues as well as people like the Sonics, MC5 and the Doors specifically. And so he formed the Psychedelic Stooges 
and began calling himself Iggy. Yeah, do you know what the great thing is? That um, if you would go to Chicago, uh, you know, it's one of those. Uh, we went to a, and I'd, I'd had a few, but we went to a blues club in Chicago and there was a guy playing there who I should be able to remember who it was, but everybody was saying, you know who that is, don't you? I'm Come going, on. no, I still don't know now. <laughs> was he white or black? <laughs> he was, a, he was a, a traditional proper blues okay. guy, you know, like in his 70s. Yeah. And there was a lot of people oh. like doffing the caps. But that was like, you know, we're, we're going back to probably 1982 then, I would okay. imagine, in right. Chicago. Uh, but if you think of going to Chicago when Iggy went, all of those really, really Johnny Hooker and all yeah. of those guys will have been playing relatively small clubs because it hadn't come round again, had it? No, not at that point. So you got Muddy Waters, as you say, Johnny yeah. Hooker. It's all there. If you wanted that, that education, it was there and you could get it real sort of up close and personal with these people. Yeah, I mean, because I went to see John Lee Hooker playing in uh, the mid-80s, I think mm. he might have been, or early 80s, but he played the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, which holds, wow. you know, like at that point in time, it would have held about 2,000 people, mm. 2,300 people. But yeah, you go to a little club in the in the 60s, and these guys were just undervalued, apart from the real purists like Iggy and like the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds, all these guys who really worshipped them. Yeah. But the kids weren't bothered, were they? They no. were bothered about the Rolling Stones. They would, I don't think they really cared too much about what had gone before. Yeah, I don't think anybody really explored the route yet, had they? They just whatever was in the charts at the time. It wasn't Buddy Guy, was it? Man, he wouldn't be 70 by that point. No, anyway. it wasn't, no. Anyway, so uh, yeah, the Stooges, Ron Ashton on guitar, Ashton's brother Scott on drums, or Rock Action, which is yeah. the best nickname <laughs> yes. ever, and Dave Alexander on bass, who uh, unfortunately was the first of the Stooges to pass away, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. And the first show was played at a Halloween party at a house in Detroit, uh, Michigan. Yeah, also members of the MC5 were there watching that night. Okay, so the seeds of Iggy Pop's stage persona were sown when he saw the Doors perform in 1967 at the University of Michigan. How many times are we going to say Michigan? I know. Uh, But uh, he was just so taken by Jim Morrison. And so that has been well documented as well, hasn't it? Yeah, so Morrison's extreme behaviour on stage was a huge influence on Iggy, as well as people like Mick Jagger and James Brown. He's reputed to be the first performer to ever do a stage dive, which he did at a concert in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, Yeah, good work, fella. Uh, They're pretty much inevitable, like you would say, wouldn't you? So he also performs quite often bare-chested, stage theatrics like rolling around in broken glass. I think was that was at the Whiskey, wasn't it? It I was think. in LA, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, pouring hot wax on his chest and getting his chap out. Yeah, very often. Um, yeah, I mean, it was that occasion, wasn't it, on the White Room uh, that Mark Radcliffe presented, where mm. he, I mean, you know, he did wear see-through trousers, right. but he neglected to put any underpants oh, on. Oh, But well. it was a post-midnight watershed, so it was well, all right. Yeah, fair enough. So talking about The Doors and their influence, especially Jim Morrison, Iggy has said, I went to two concerts by the doors the first one I attended was early on and they'd not gotten their, their shit together yet that show was a big big influence on me they just had their big hit Light My Fire and the album had taken off so here's this guy out of his head on acid dressed in leather with his hair all oiled and curled the stage was tiny and it was really low and it got confrontational I found it really interesting and I loved the performance yeah he continued part of me was like wow this is great he's really pissing people off and he's lurching around making these guys angry people were rushing the stage and Morrison's going fuck you, you blank, blank, blank. You can fill in your own sexual comments yourself. The other half thought what I thought. If they've got a hit record out and they can get away with this, then I have no fucking excuse not to get out there on stage with my band. It was sort of a case of, hey, I can do that. There really was some of that in there, which is brilliant because, do you know, if you think about it, 
it was the Pistols who looked to Iggy, other bands as well, but they looked to the Stooges mm. to give them that kind of confidence to go on stage. They did no fun early doors, yeah, the Stooges, didn't they? Yeah. And then, of course, the Pistols formed, and they set the template for all of the other kids who thought, I can do that. So, I mean, you know, you look at the history of punk, I don't think Jim Morrison is ever mentioned. No, not at all. You but know. You look at that chain of influences, and he's right there, isn't he? You kind of trace that right back. Completely. I mean, and if you think about the Doors music, it's quite sanitised, really, isn't it? Mm. But Jim Morrison was reckless, and yeah. he got arrested, and he got his chap out. So <laughs> there's, definitely, there's definitely a pattern emerging. <laughs> there is, absolutely. So in 1968, so a year after their live debut, now they're called the Stooges, having dropped the psychedelic bit. Apparently, one of the band called Mo Howard, I love this story, mm. and I hope it is true, but uh, Mo Howard of the Three Stooges fame, uh, you know, to, to ask if it was all right to call his band the Stooges. How which, polite. To which Howard responded by merely saying, I don't care what they call themselves as long as they're not the Three Stooges and hung up the phone. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I mean, again, you look at these kids and you know, they are doing drugs and they're just like, you know, going for it and inventing stage diving and doing all, yeah. you know, all the other stuff. But they still ring up the Three Stooges <laughs> to ask the permission. Oh, oh now he got his number with the phone book. Oh, Mo Howard. Great. <laughs> the mind boggles. Anyway, the band did sign to a lecture, which was great for Iggy particularly because that was the home of The Doors. Yeah, of course. First album produced by John Cale in New York in 1969. Yeah, legendarily. So, February 1971, on a trip to Los Angeles, Bowie acquires Rolling Stone journalist John Mendelssohn's copy of the Stooges' debut album. And he absolutely loves it, and he tells everyone he has a new character. Yeah. Ziggy! Here we go. So, 1971, without a record deal, the Stooges kept performing in small clubs of the five-piece lineup, which had uh, both Ron Ashton and James Williamson on guitars, and Jimmy Wrecker on bass. Mm. Dave Alexander having been sacked by Pop the previous year when he turned up for a gig unable to play because he was uh, intoxicated I mean he died in 1975 didn't he yeah he was yeah he was the first for them all to go as I say yeah and uh, and it was shortly after that that they disbanded because Mm. and that was again I mean if you look at the history of the band that was due to Iggy Pop getting involved in heroin yeah absolutely 9th of September 1971 whilst in New York Bowie mentions to the journalist Lisa Robinson that he's a big fan of Iggy's and she then calls Iggy's A&R man Danny Fields who, as luck would have it, happened to be staying with uh, Iggy at the time. Right, yeah, okay. probably helping him out, trying to get him over the hell yeah. and stuff. Yeah, uh, both working out what the Stooges' list singer should do next. Obviously, the Stooges disbanded, didn't quite know what he was going to do with himself. Later that night, Iggy and the future Ziggy met for the first time at Max's Kansas City in New York. So a real historic moment there. Yeah, and a historic venue as well, yeah. wasn't it? So Bowie and Tony DeFeese offered Iggy a management contract and they move him into uh, their hotel in New York where he starts on a health kick. Good mm. luck, Iggy. <laughs> uh, and it, again, just to get himself off the Class A drugs. Yeah. And, take, and, he, and, he, and he did grasp the he opportunity, did. didn't he? Yeah, he went for it. So October 71 with Hunky Dory just about to be released and the next album about to go into production. Bowie warns Ken Scott. He said, you're not going to like it. It's more much like Iggy Pop. This is a Ziggy album, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. And so uh, by the summer of 72, Iggy had joined Bowie in London and on the 30th of June, the two of them and photographer Mick Rock, they go and see Alice Cooper at Wembley Empire Pool and we've mentioned this before, mm. uh, influenced definitely by the, the stage show by yeah, Alice Cooper. Yeah, all the theatrics and the rest of it. So, with James Williamson signed on as guitar player, the search began for a rhythm section. However, since neither Pop nor Williamson were satisfied with anybody in England, they decided to reunite the Stooges. Well, we have mentioned this again before because Egg de Broughton was uh, put in line yeah. at one point in time and the Egg de Broughton band, I think, but because uh, Bowie, he asked him to get involved, and uh, there is some story of Egg de Broughton actually being involved on playing on a Bowie record. There is. It's very sketchy as to whether it might be Diamond Dogs or yeah, possibly Diamond Dogs. But obviously, Iggy just felt he just wanted to go back and and go his 
you know, his trusted old bandmates. What he knew. Yeah, and poor old Rod, Ron Ashton. I mean, you know, oh, yeah, he, he had some uh, wrong decisions in his life. Yeah, you know, again, yeah. I think we've mentioned the band New Order. Funny yeah, enough, yeah, uh, not yeah. New Order, Joy Division, yeah. New Order, mm. the other one. Uh, but he moved from guitar to bass, which mm. must have been for him, uh, you know, a bit of a blow, really. Yeah. Because I mean, his his was the sound of the studio. It was, you know, and his use of the wah wah was just amazing. But you have to say, James Williamson was a better technician, but that doesn't mean anything. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I think the pretty sure. Didn't Johnny Marr once cite James Williamson as his favourite guitar player, you know, of all time? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So the recording sessions produced raw power, okay, and after its release, Scott Thurston was added to the band on keyboards and electric piano. Bowie continued his support of Iggy, uh, but Pop still had his drug problem, couldn't quite shake all that off. Yeah, so the 15th of July, after a Ziggy show at Friars Aylesbury, Bowie dashes back to London to catch Iggy in the Stooges' now legendary set at the Scala in mm. London and that night Mick Rock took the equally legendary photo of Iggy which is on the cover of Raw Power yeah. and we mentioned also I know I know but uh, it was either the next night or the previous night where Lou Reed had played the same venue mm. and the uh, front cover of Transformers yeah, taken by absolutely. Mick Rock what an iconic week so 16th of October having had the tapes of Raw Power sent over to America Bowie sets about remixing the album with Iggy in Hollywood uh, which proves a bit difficult because Iggy uh, decided that he wanted all the instruments on one channel and his voice on the other, <laughs> which doesn't really make much sense. You know, and no. I mean, I interviewed Iggy. Um, I've interviewed him a couple of times, right. but the, the first occasion, I think it was, no, the second occasion that I did it was on a tour bus outside the Academy venue in Manchester, and I made the mistake of saying to him, and so, yeah, we're on to raw power now, Iggy, and of course, David Bowie produced it. He went, ah, <gasps> uh, no, mixed it. I produced it. He mixed it. And yeah. he was very, very, and, and quite right too, you know. Yeah. But the mix of Raw Power has been uh, the subject of many, many conversations, hasn't it? Because mm. uh, eventually Hen- Henry Rollins of uh, Black Flag remixed it. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a very tinny mix, isn't it? And I'm probably not helped by the fact that all the instruments are on one channel <laughs> and Iggy's on the other. Well, isn't, it ain't going to help. No, it isn't going to help. So there you go. So it comes out. Raw Power is released 7th of February 1973. Reviews are good, largely. But of course, you know, the Stooges already on their way to oblivion, really, weren't they, at that point? They were, yeah. Well, I mean, the oblivion being particularly a night when they played uh, in uh, Detroit. Yeah. And it was in front of a load of bikers. And they were uh, Iggy was in bad shape. Yeah. And it's the album, Metallic KO, mm. which is one... I've got the T-shirt, I've got the album. It's yeah. one of the most incendiary it documents is. ever. Absolutely. But you can hear Iggy calling out the Hells Angels in the audience. Mm. And then every now and then you'll hear a... And it's... And then Iggy's going, OK, have you got any more? And yeah. they're throwing ashtrays yeah. and bottles at him and all sorts. And he is not phased one bit. No. And, the, and the, sh- the cover shot, if anybody doesn't know it, the cover shot of Metallic KO is Iggy knocked out on the floor. Mm. It is just one of the... It's an amazing document of, of a pretty gnarly and horrible night, actually. But that, that was the end of it, wasn't it? Yeah, but it just kind of shows you how far he'd taken that idea of Jim Morrison, hadn't he? Really to the extreme. You know, it's just baiting the audience. It's the kind of people you don't want to bait in the first place. You know, these yeah. bikers. And... And you say knocked out. That's how it goes. So, and of course, drug abuse, as we know, stalled Iggy's career for quite some time, quite a few years, didn't it? It did, yeah. So we're going to bump along now to a happier times, Bob. So uh, Bowie and Berlin, 1976 mm. to 1978. But uh, yeah, it was the second breakup of the Stooges and Iggy Pop made some uh, recordings with James Williamson, which were great. They didn't surface until 1977. Uh, so this was all done in like 1975, I think. Yeah. Uh, but that, that appeared eventually as a Kill City album. Which, which is a corker. It is a corker, absolutely. I've got that on green vinyl, you know. It's a lovely Ooh, place. Tasty. Anyway, so uh, Pop, still unable to control his drug habit, checked himself into a mental institution, the UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute, just to try and clean up. 
Yeah, and, and it's well documented. Bowie was one of the very few people who went mm. and visit him there, you know, and he just kept supporting him and giving him encouragement. And then he asked him to come along with him and be his companion on the Station to Station tour. Yeah, so amazingly, this is the first time Iggy had really been exposed to large-scale professional touring, you know, and he was really impressed with it, particularly impressed with Bowie's work ethic. Yeah, I mean, from my understanding, I don't think the Stooges ever really um, went out on any big tour no. supporting anybody. Mm. You know, if you look at the New York Dolls, they played Wembley Empire Pool supporting the faces and, yeah. you know, and, and various other things. But I can't remember Iggy ever going on and like playing an enormous dome or even the, the big theatres opening for somebody else. And so it must have been a real eye-opener for him. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, and so it was uh, 1976, both Bowie and Iggy Pop were arrested for marijuana possession in Rochester, New York. Uh, the charges were dropped. Yeah. Isn't this amazing shot of Bowie? I've not seen the mugshot of Iggy, but the mugshot of mm. Davy Bowie is available everywhere. Yeah, and yeah, every yeah. now and then on some Twitter feeds, Bowie-related Twitter feeds, it mm. comes up. And it is the coolest mugshot ever. And, you know, you can see there are mugshots for Elvis Presley and loads of different people that just surface along the same yeah. time. Because people look at it and go, this is great, and then they'll throw the Elvis one out and, and Johnny Cash. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. But the Bowie one, it could be an album cover. Oh, no, that's a great thing. Because when you look at mugshots, I mean, obviously, I know this is, seems to be ridiculously obvious, but they look like criminals. And it's almost like if you're having a mugshot taken, you adopt that pose. But Bowie's not. As you say, it's almost like he's orchestrated it himself somehow. Yeah, I mean, I doubt he did. But, yeah, okay. <laughs> he probably looked, I'll tell you what, the coppers probably looked at it and thought, do you know what? He looks so cool, we'll drop the charge. We'll let him off. Yeah. We'll let him off. So after that, Bowie and Pop relocated to West Berlin to wean themselves off their respective drug addictions. And we've been through this before. Probably not the best place to go to try and do that, you know, at that drug point in time. Drug capital of Europe, yeah. they called it, didn't they? Yeah. So 1977, Iggy Pop signed with RCA Records and uh, and Bowie helped write and produce The Idiot and Lust for Life. And uh, they're two great albums. Well, the jury's out for some people, but most mm. certainly not for me. Um, so Iggy's discography, you got, well, The, the Stooges, a debut album, nineteen. Sixty-nine. Yeah, you got Funhouse, which is probably my favourite rock album of all time. An incredible piece of work. Yeah, 1973, Raw Power. And The Weirdness, which is like the comeback from 2007. Yeah, and Ready to Die. There's, there's lots of others yeah. in there. But, it, you know, if you look at that again, if you look at the Stooges, so there's that prototype mixing the doors and the heavy blues yeah. and Psych, of mm. course. And then you've got Funhouse which is just this experimental saxophone all over it, or everything recorded yeah. live, you know. You know, it's got that on a Coleman influence in there. It's free jazz as much as rock and roll. It's it is. Incredible. And then you've got Raw Power, which is a glam-infused album, yeah. isn't it? And so those three albums, which are legendary, are all very different from, from each other, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, But they are, you know, it's all you need at Stooges, really. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. So I is also for Iggy Pop, the idiot. Sorry, no, I didn't mean that. I meant Iggy Pop, the idiot. Ah, this is the debut solo album, of course, Mark. The first of two LPs released in 77, which Iggy wrote and recorded with Bowie. Definitely. So uh, the sessions for the album began before the recording of Low, and the idiot had been called the unofficial beginning of Bowie's Berlin period. Mm, Described by Pop as a cross between James Brown and Kraftwerk, the idiot is sort of departure from the hard rock and the sort of punkiness of the Stooges, being compared with Bowie's Berlin trilogy uh, in the use of electronica and just that sort of slightly claustrophobic introspective atmosphere. Yeah, the title of it was inspired by Dostoevsky's novel The Idiot, and all three of the people who were involved in making the records, that's Bowie Pop and Tony Visconti, they had all read the book and were into it. So the album uh, did very well, sort of critically upon release, regarded by critics one of uh, Pop's best works, although not particularly representative of what he does. Well, yeah, we'll get to that later. So the album's opening track is Sister Midnight, which is a corker written by Bowie Pop and Carlos Alomar, and it was performed live on the Station to Station tour early 1976. In July that year, following the end of the tour, Bowie and Pop holed up in the Chateau d'Ouvrel, which is where Bowie had done pinups previously mm. and would uh, very soon be recording low and he put together the rest of the songs that would later become The Idiot. Yeah, so at the Chateau they were joined by Laurent Thibault on bass and Michel uh, Santangeli on drums who required with minimal guidance apparently to add to rough music tracks already taped by Bowie. Their first takes often becoming part of the final mix. It's this whole Bowie let's get it down fast attitude again. Yeah, great. And so uh, yeah, the recording continued in Munich a little bit later with guitarist Phil Palmer and he uh, and he found the collaboration between Iggy Pop and Davy Bowie stimulating, but the word disquieting is in there. He said he never saw them during the day. Vampiric would be the perfect word. <laughs> Terrific. So overdubs were done by Bowie's regular rhythm section, Carlos Alomar, Dennis Davis and George Murray, plus a final mix by Tony Visconti, which took place in Berlin at Hansa Studio One. Yeah, and you mentioned this before. So they weren't rushing it exactly, but no. they didn't mess about either. And so uh, because of the fact that um, Tony Visconti was giving it to kind of uh, finish it off, really, mm. Uh, Tony Visconti said it was more of a salvage job than a creative mixing. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? So because of its ambiguous, in some cases, non-existent credits, misconceptions have arisen over the years as to who actually contributed what to the idiots. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know how clean both of them were, but I I bet both of them can't really remember too much of what went on. But uh, the common belief being that so Iggy Pop wrote the lyrics and Bowie wrote the music, but it wasn't always the case. Iggy would write some of the music, like Dum Dum Boys, and Bowie would write some of the lyrics like Sister Midnight, for instance. Yeah, yeah. The album's cover photo, meanwhile, was inspired by Eric Heckel's Rocky Roll, which is often assumed to be by Bowie. It was, in fact, taken by Andy Kent, the photographer. No instrumental credits were included on the sleeve, causing some speculation as to the musicians involved. But due to various authors, you know, really kind of delving deep into the subject now, we've got a general idea of who did what. So um, Pop, speaking of Bowie, described the Krautrock influenced nightclubbing as my comment on what it was like hanging out with him every night. Mm. The track was recorded one night after all the other musicians had left 
Bowie playing the melody on piano with an old rhythm machine for backing. When uh, Iggy Pop pronounced himself happy with the end result, Bowie protested that they needed real drums to finish it off. Iggy Pop insisted on keeping the rhythm machine, saying, it kicks ass, it's better than a drummer. Great. And he's right, that's that. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you look at the Motorik um, drum style, which was influencing them around about this yeah. time, from Krautrock, from the likes of Noy and that, you can't get much more Motorik than a motor, <laughs> or an engine, or a robot, or yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So he's, he's dead right, that Yeah, worked brilliantly. Uh, Pop largely wrote the lyrics on the spot in 10 minutes, apparently, which is uh, Bowie suggesting that he write about walking through the night like ghosts. Yeah, and and that style of writing influenced Bowie in turn, didn't yeah. it? So The Idiot made number 30 in the UK, and it was the first time any of Iggy Pop's records had cracked the top 40. Yeah, which seems remarkable. It also uh, peaked at number 72 in the States. Uh, Sister Midnight and China Girl released the singles in February and May of 77, both with the same B-side, which was Baby. Right, OK. And uh, Paul Trinker, uh, his biographer, mm. he said that The Idiot would remain an album that was more respected than loved, the reviews mostly neutral, but it prefigured the soul of post-punk. Now, I hope he's just paraphrasing other people's mentality here, because it is just one of the great oh, albums, isn't it? It is. And I don't, know if you, uh, I don't know if you remember this, you may never have heard it, but I, I did a series for um, Radio 2 and Radio 4 called The Musical Time Machine, mm. and it clipped various uh, archive interviews, and it was a good programme, and it's not, I was barely in it, but it was just getting some really amazing stuff from the archive that might not have been heard for years, might not have been heard in its entirety. And there was a great interview with Stuart Grundy of the BBC oh, yeah. and Iggy, and it was around the time of The Idiot. And so when we got the tapes for the interview, it was really interesting because they would just set the tape rolling, and then the conversation would start, and then the interview would start. And so Stuart Grundy comes in really bullish... And, and he says, oh, hello, Iggy. Um, what have you been doing today? And Iggy says, oh, I've been uh, jogging around Hyde Park. And he goes, oh, really, Iggy? Yes, I've been jogging this morning as well. I have to say, um, your album landed today. I've only heard it once, but I don't think much of it. Really? And Iggy just goes, yeah. oh, OK. And so he'd heard this record, okay. which, can, which, 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 let's look at it, it was a game changer. It was, it and was. And obviously, Stuart Grundy had only given himself a quick flit through it mm. to, and not recognise the fact that it was a game changer, but also had, well, the honesty stroke audacity <laughs> to tell him that it was not very good. <laughs> and you can hear it in Iggy's voice because he just starts off, he just goes, um... Okay. I mean, what are you supposed to say to that, though? No, seriously, you think if you go in as a journalist talking to somebody of Iggy's stature, you know, you'd, you'd be well informed. You would just give it a, a cursory listen, you know, at 11 o'clock in the morning. You would hope so. Shush, Bob. Oh, listen to that. We need to mention at this point in time that we have specially gone oh. to the Arctic. We are now, we've only just mentioned this, we're in mm. a tent, aren't we, Bob, doing a, yeah. a special OB for this podcast. And it is blowy outside, I'll be frank. It's very blowy yeah. outside, but okay. it's, it's nice and warm in here but anyway. we should mention, you know, while all that is going on, that on its original release, Rolling Stone uh, called The Idiot the most savage indictment of rock posturing ever recorded, a necrophiliac's delight. Oh, give over. So whilst the album has become highly praised in its own right, quite right, over the years, Iggy Pop purists have criticised the work as unrepresentative of his repertoire and as evidence of being co-opted by Bowie for the latter's own ends. Now, yeah. Bowie kind of admits that a little bit, doesn't he? He does. You know, he, he said later, he said, poor Jim. He said, in a way, he became a guinea pig for what I wanted to do with sound. I didn't have the material at the time and I didn't feel like writing at all. I felt much more like laying back and getting behind somebody else's work. So that album was opportune creatively. But, you know, to do Raw Power 2 would have been 
completely pointless. Yeah. And for him and for his audience, or those who were open-minded enough to take it, it was a palate cleanser, wasn't it? It, was. it wasn't what you were expecting. And, of course, we know that Bowie changed with the wind, the wind which is howling around our yeah. tent at the moment. Um, but, it, you know, Iggy's records were different. We've mentioned that. But this was radically different. And it was a record which, obviously, it was, t- you know, it had uh, craft work in there particularly, you yeah. would say. Uh, but that was a record that did help a lot of the bands like, you know, Human League. If you hear, oh. if you hear a lot of the uh, the Human League singles, even, like, particularly the poppy ones. Yeah, sure. Then you can just hear, you can hear that album. Yeah. You can hear it more than you can hear craft work. Definitely. I mean, the DNA of uh, of The Idiot just kind of spread, didn't it, very, very quickly, Completely. I think. So the album site has a major influence, as you just mentioned. I mean, Nine Inch Nails as well, the whole industrial rock and the advent of and Joy Division. You know, the sad thing being, of course, that Ian Curtis was found hanged in 1980 with the album still spinning on the turntable, apparently. Yeah, the actual track listing, Sister Midnight. Got nightclubbing. Fun time. Baby. China Girl. Dun Dun Boys. Uh, Tiny Girls. And Mass Production. Mass Production was something that really got Stuart Grundy's goat. It was it really? As I remember. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and I mean, he gets thrown it in. And also, I mean, you know... China Girl by Bowie. Yeah, they will have made Iggy an awful lot of money, but the, the 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 Iggy version is better. Of course it? it is. Of course it is. So the personnel, Iggy Pop vocals. You got Bowie on all sorts of stuff: keyboards, synth, guitar, piano, sax, xylophone, uh, backing vocals, and production, of course. Right. Well, there we can go. You remember that, Bob? Because we can put xylophone under X. Oh, I was wondering about X. We're a, Brilliant. Bit, we're a bit light on Brilliant. X, aren't we? Uh, Carlos Salomon guitar. De- Dennis Davis on drums. George Murray bass guitar. Phil Palmer on guitar as well. Uh, yeah, Michael. Santangeli, Laurent Thibault on bass, and Tony Visconti on the mixing. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Let's move on now to the 1977 Iggy Pop, The Idiot. Oh, yeah. Which, again, is legendary, which you always say to me, you saw this, didn't you? And I can see a hint of jealousy in your eyes. I'm Ah. not at all surprised. So, uh, Lowe was racing up the chart, but Bowie didn't really bother too much with the uh, promotion for it, Mm. and so decided to go out playing keyboards for his pal Iggy. Of course he did. So the set list uh, sort of basically consisted of a number of old Stooges' favourites, as well as material from The Idiot, and three new tunes which would later appear on Lust for Life. So in Britain, by this time, Iggy was being widely hailed as a founding father of punk, and the Evening Standard soberly informed the readers of his bizarre stage appearances that have included antics like vomiting over a member of the audience, smashing his teeth out with a microphone, <laughs> and smashing a broken glass against his chest. Now, I don't know about the vomiting, I've not heard that. No. You know, but yeah, I mean, I on several occasions I've nearly had a tooth knocked out by a microphone when you're on stage. It just happens, and if you're cavorting around like that, so yeah. I don't think Iggy thought I've got a good idea. I'm going to knock my front teeth no. out tonight. As far as I know, he's still got his front teeth, so it's probably an occupational hazard, as you say. And he was rolling around on the floor at the whiskey, and he rolled yeah. over some glass. I don't think he did it purposely. No. And also, let's put to bed the a whole hot wax scenario because people go, "This is crazy." So mm. if you can see a picture of Iggy, I don't even know if one exists of him doing it. Yeah. Uh, but he, he he jumped on a table and held the candle upside down and poured wax on his body and people yeah. going ah oh. but i'm not suggesting you try it but the minute that wax hits skin yeah. it goes freezing cold yes. and so it's not like it's not like pouring molten lava over your body wow. so it looks a lot better than than it, it, it actually is we're getting into science here mark that's remarkable you know 
a different territory. Absolutely. So the touring band was completed by Lowe's guitarist Ricky Gardner and two new arrivals, the Sales Brothers. So this is Hunt and uh, bassist Tony, the sons of the Texan stand-up comedian and one-time Sinatra acolyte uh, Soupy Sales. So former members of Todd Rundgren's band, they'd go on to play on Lust for Life and a decade later would feature in a more notorious attempt by Bowie to seek anonymity with a democratic band structure, which we will get to in a bit and probably in detail in tea. We will. Okay, so it was the first time I'd ever really put myself into a band since the Spiders, said Bowie. It was great not having the pressure of being the singer up front. Iggy would be preening himself before he went on, and I'd be sitting there reading a book. (laughs) Great. So Bowie was determined not to divert press attention away from Iggy. Sounds reported, if you wanted David, you also got the band. So on stage, of course, he he stayed behind his keyboard, barely looked at the audience. Uh, It was a sort of generous gesture at the time, and a great manoeuvre at the same time. Bowie's presence undoubtedly helped Iggy to sell tickets at the same time it removed him from centre stage at a time when anybody sort of remotely mainstream was in danger of being rubbished by uh, the onset of punk. Yeah, I mean, we know that the punks love Bowie, generally yeah. speaking, most of them anyway. But yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we've seen the photographs, but Bowie always sat side on. He wasn't even looking at the audience mm. when he played. He uh, he had he was side stage looking in at the band, or often more often than not, down at the keyboard, yeah. actually. Did he usually wear a little flat cap as well? Flat cap, yeah. and I think uh, like a, you know, a check shirt and big boots. Right. Yeah, I mean, he did, he won't take it, and Iggy wore not much, no. as usual, and was jumping around topless and doing what Iggy does like nobody else does, actually. Yeah, okay. Uh, So the tour opened at Friars Aylesbury, where Bowie played some of the early Ziggy shows. Yeah, CF, by the way. After six British dates came an Atlantic crossing, and on the schedule, a left Bowie no alternative but to conquer his fear of flying for a mm. well, ooh, about five years since he'd flown, I think, wasn't it? Some of the American gigs were supported by an up-and-coming uh, new wave act called Blondie. Yeah, and they also appeared on the Dinah Shaw show and performed Sister Midnight and Fun Time, both great performances. Yeah, so although both uh, Bowie and Iggy come a long way since the self-destructed excesses of their last time in America, the wolf was still at the door, Mark. Right. Uh, there were too many drugs around at the time, said Bowie. This was in 1993, reflecting on the whole time. Uh, I was going through these really ambivalent things because they kept wanting to leave the tour to keep off the drugs. The drug use was unbelievable and I knew it was killing me, so that was the difficult side of it. But the playing was fun. Yeah, I mean, it is strange, isn't it? Because he'd been through rehab and everything and helped him out and then they go to Berlin and recognise that it's a drug city, but they they hold it together and then he just throws that in. Mm. Yeah, the tour was carnage. Everybody's doing loads of drugs again. <laughs> Fell at the first hurdle, lads. Absolutely. Get your um, together. But anyway, he resumed touring, did Iggy, in, in the autumn of 77 uh, after completing work on Lust for Life but Bowie had to drop out of the uh, tour didn't he because mm. he had other work to do on Heroes actually yeah. so Stacey Hayden who uh, was with Bowie on the Station to Station tour uh, joined the band and also the ex studios keyboard player Scott Thurston who took the place of Bowie on the keyboards The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Iggy's Lust for Life, okay, the second studio album of his, uh, released in August 29th, 1977, the second release and second collaboration of 77 with David Bowie, of course, after The Idiot. So as well as being a critical success, it's Pop's most commercially popular album to date, remains, quite surprised, his only gold certified release in Britain. 
Right, OK. So the Lust for Life sessions took place soon after the completion of the tour that we've been talking about, uh, that he went out with Bowie and the Idiot album, and that ended on the 16th of April, 1977. And Iggy stated, uh, David and I had determined that we would record the album very quickly. This is brilliant. Mm. He said, which we wrote and recorded and mixed in eight days. And because we'd done it so quickly, we had a lot of money left over from the advance, so we split it. <laughs> That's great. So uh, you can just Love imagine it. them, like, in a hotel room <laughs> with a suitcase full of money saying, right, one for you... One oh, for me. nice, like laying it out on the bed. Apparently, Iggy slept very little during the making of Lust for Life, saying later, see, Bowie's a hell of a fast guy. I realise I had to be quicker than him, otherwise whose album was it going to be? That is so clever. Fair point. Uh, Pop's spontaneous lyrical method inspired Bowie to improvise his own words on his next project, Heroes, as you mentioned before. Yeah, and so Bowie, Iggy Pop and the engineer Colin Thurston produced uh, Lust for Life under the pseudonym Boulet Brothers. Mm. Yeah, and the recording was made at Hansa by the Wall and featured Ricky Gardner and Carlos Salomon on guitar with Hunt and Sales on drums and bass. Yeah, talking of which, so you've got with Bowie on keyboards here and backing vocals, the team included three quarters of the future Tin Machine lineup. So you've got the Sales Brothers' contribution to uh, Lust for Life uh, leading Bowie to invite them to join his new band 12 years after this. Uh, check out Lust for Life, he told Reeves Gabrell's guitar player, I've found a new rhythm section. And what a rhythm section. I mean, if you listen to the swing on, on the tune Lust for Life, yeah, oh. the drumming on that is just so great. And yeah, and, uh, yeah a brilliant, a brilliant uh, rhythm rhythm section absolutely great and again the uh, sleeve photo was taken by Andy Kent who also shut the cover for the idiot yeah so Lust for Life itself generally perceived to be more of an Iggy record than a Bowie uh, sort of dominated one which is like you could say possibly about the idiot you know yeah less keyboards in it wasn't Definitely. it that, really? uh, less experimental on a musical level more of a rock and roll thing what Iggy was used to I suppose yeah I mean some dark stuff on there like The Passenger which uh, has been described as one of uh, Iggy Pop's most haunting tracks mm. and Tonight and Turn Blue they're both pretty yeah. pretty dark songs aren't they absolutely in contrast to that you've got the upbeat stuff like Success and of course Lust for Life itself uh, the latter described by Rolling Stone as Iggy's survivor message to the masses. And according to Iggy, Bowie's riff on Lust for Life, much talked about, was inspired by the Morse code opening uh, to the American Forces Network News in Berlin. Great, uh, but, and he was supposed to have written it on a ukulele, wasn't he? Yeah, well, I was watching German TV in their flat. In fact, uh, when uh, Stephen Dalton and I interviewed Bowie in 2001, we were talking about that, and he gives all the details on that. So that's, that is how it happened. Right, OK. okay. And the lyrics have also been interpreted as Iggy's knowing commentary on Bowie's cultural vampirism. Mm. Really? Uh, really? Ooh, I don't think so. You mentioned the kind of darkness of Turn Blue before, so it's just under seven minutes long. It's the longest tune on the album. A confessional, really. It went back, so dated back to an abortive recording session by Bowie and Pop in May 75, when Iggy was in the depth of his drug uh, dependency. Originally called Moving On, it was composed by Bowie, Pop, Walter Lacey and Warren Peace. Oh, I didn't know that. Hello, Jeff. Uh, so it was the only set of lyrics that did not appear on the original vinyl sleeve. Yeah, the album's remaining tracks included... 16, which is the only piece written entirely by Iggy. A great song. And Lust for Life reached number 28 in the UK album chart, and it was his second highest performing release uh, after 2016's post-pop depression. Yeah, but then sort of fate sort of conspired against him. So that initially the album sold really well in the States, but Elvis Presley's death caused RCA to quickly reissue Elvis's entire catalogue, and any promo focus for Iggy's album was lost. What a nightmare. So the track listing, Lust for Life. 16. Some Weird Sin. The Passenger. Tonight. Success. Turn Blue, Neighbourhood Threat, Fall in Love With Me. And then, of course, you've got Iggy on vocals. Yeah, uh, Bowie on keyboards and all that. Carlos Alomar, rhythm guitar and a bit of lead. Uh, Ricky Gardner. Warren Peace. Tony Sales. And Hunt Sales. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited.
edited by Howard Knox. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.